Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, December 15th, 2014. Yeah, our sermon review today will be another example of missing and or mixing the uh, true Christmas message with something that just isn't in the biblical text. But as you can tell, I'm way getting ahead of myself here. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of bizarre, crazy things being said out there. We take the time to slow down, stop, open up our Bibles to see if what's being said actually squares with what God's Word says in context. And over and over and over again, we find that the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, authors, and people put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as people that we really need to be listening to that over and again, well, they aren't rightly handling God's Word, and they are teaching not a Christ-centered message, but a me-centered message. And a me-centered message isn't going to save nobody, because uh, you, you got to understand, that you're kind of two buckets, if you would, uh, when it comes to humanity. The, the bucket that you and I find ourselves in is the bucket of born dead and trespasses and sins and at war with God, and the the other bucket, well, it's only got one person in it, and that's Jesus, who was sinless. Mm-hmm. But see, he was sinless for us, so he's the solution to the problem that we find ourselves in. We're born in slavery, he comes to set us free. We're born dead in trespasses and sins, he dies on the cross for our sins and makes us alive in him. You, you see, kind of see how that works out. And so when you preach me... And you make the Bible about me, you strip it away from being about Jesus, and you obscure and blur what the Bible is about. And two times a year, this becomes painfully obvious. I mean painfully obvious, although we show this year-round here at Fighting for the Faith. But two times a year, it really begins to stick out like a sore uh, thumb. Getting ahead of myself there. Like a sore thumb. And... um, The examples that I'm referring to are Christmas and Easter. Now, during the Easter season, we have our worst Easter sermon of the year contest. Worst Easter sermon of the year contest. And uh, just trust me when I tell you, they are absolutely miserable. Now, I received an email from a listener 
not too long ago, kind of offering, you know, kind of the yin to that yang, saying, well, Chris, why don't you have a best Christmas sermon of the year contest? And I thought, hmm, <laughs> hadn't thought about that. Hmm. Yeah, that might be uh, worth considering, you know, so that you know, once a year we get best Christmas because we need some examples of some good Christmas preaching. We really, truly do, because what we've been highlighting here at Fighting for the Faith in, during this Christmas season, although it's really actually Advent right now, um, yeah, see, yeah, in, in fact, um, if you were to listen to my sermons right now, I'm not preaching Christmas texts. I'm preaching from the Advent texts, which are assigned for the lectionary for this time of the year. Advent is a penitential season, and uh, during the season of Advent, uh, in the lectionary, historic Christian lectionary, it's John the Baptist who shows up, you know, you know, pointing his bony finger at you with his smelly camel hair garment and leather belt and grasshopper infested teeth, you know, uh, telling you to repent, uh, to prepare the way of the Lord. And, th- and that's truly how we prepare for the arrival of Christ is, well, by repenting. And since Christ has now come, we repent and we uh, we live in the assurance that our forgiveness has been won by Christ's reconciling work on the cross. So, the, you know, so that's the idea. But uh, so people get ahead of themselves when they think that uh, Christmas starts, you know, the day after the Fourth of July. At least that's when they pull out the uh, the decorations at Walmart, isn't it? But see, Christmas actually doesn't begin then. There are twelve days of Christmas, and they don't begin on July fifth, nor they do they begin the day after Thanksgiving. In fact, you know, what I've found is is that, um, you know, I kind of purposely avoid um, Christmas carols and Christmas radio stations and things like that, um, you know, really, really early on in December. It's not until we start to get into, you know, right before Christmas Eve where I'll allow myself to uh, partake of those. And I find that I don't get um, bored with them and they I don't you know, get sick of them because, you know, what I'll do is, you know, I'll right, right about the time of Christmas Eve is when I'll pull them out and listen to them. And I love them. Um, and I'll keep it going, you know, the, you know, from Christmas day for like a week after Christmas and then, you know, it's done and they disappear and I can handle that. I can handle that. You know, a uh, week and a half, two weeks of Christmas songs, they're appropriate at that time because we're truly then at that point celebrating the birth of Christ. And it's really good news, truly good news that unto us a Savior is born. And that's kind of the point, the punch that you got to give to the message of the angels you know, who are announcing for unto you, unto us, unto y'all, uh, a Savior is born. This is the good news of, of Christmas. And uh, And so, you know, but in years past when I was younger, you know, you know, I I got you know caught up in the consumerism of of the Christmas season, and you know Christmas began on Thanksgiving Day, and you know and and you know and as I got older, and you know you don't have the Christmas list that you did when you were you know young, you know dear Santa, I'd like this and that, and, you know whatever, but uh, you know and so you know keeping that momentum emotionally going for more than a month, you can't, I can't do it. I just I I can't do it. Um, and what I find to be the better thing to be doing is, is, uh, is kind of this idea that, um, I think that our fathers in the faith understood what they were doing when they put Advent, you know, as the thing leading up to Christmas, 
a true penitential season where the message is repentance in anticipation of the arrival of the Savior. Now, that's something that um, just, you know, I, it, it, I haven't, well, become bored with it yet. Uh, because, you know, as I examine my life in light of God's word, in light, in light of the Ten Commandments, in light of the two tables of the law, I see that I constantly come up short. And so the, the best way I can think of to prepare for the arrival of Christ here on earth and celebrate his birth, well, is to, again, avail myself of the message of John the Baptist and repent and make my path straight before the Lord kind of thing. Yeah, that's kind of the idea. So anyway, enough of my Advent Christmas rant thing going on there. Let's uh, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Now, I've already kind of given you a you know a, a glimpse as to as to what we're going to do in hour number two. We will be listening to a, a, another a really bad handling of uh, the Christmas story, and in this one, we'll get a, a just a tiny little <laughs> gospel nugget. You know, it, it's actually kind of a main point, so it's a little more than a nugget, but. Um, it's mixed. The, the true Christmas message is mixed with this, this awful me-centered nonsense. And as a result of it, it gets piled under, you know, the, the, the diamond gets piled under, well, a dung heap. Yeah, I think is a good way of putting it. And so, uh, yeah, we'll, uh, you know, in hour number two, we'll be, I think we're heading to West Ridge Church. Let me look at, uh, my, uh, my program notes here. And, um, Let's see here. Uh, yes, it is West Ridge Church, uh, a, a sermon by Paul Richardson entitled A Piece of Christmas. And peace is spelled P-E-A-C-E, P-E-A-C-E. And they're talking about Joseph. Again, another mishandling of uh, the Joseph story. But before we get to hour number two, notice I'm beginning with the end here. Before we get to hour number two, we are going to first begin with a um, a Patricia King gang update. We're going to be listening to a television program on the uh, Patricia King XP Media website entitled The Glory Zone, uh-huh, uh, David Herzog Ministries. And we're going to be listening to David and his wife talk about how to walk into your future, how to walk into your future, because, you know, everybody knows that's what Christianity is all about. It's just walking into your future. And uh, and then what we'll do is we're going to kind of do a twofold, two part, if you would, money grubbing televangelist update. We have audio of Creflo Dollar uh, speaking at the funeral for Miles Monroe, although he doesn't call it a funeral. And in his <clears throat> funeral speech, although I think he called it a homegoing celebration, I think is what he called it. Um, in his funeral speech. Um, uh, Creflo Dollar reveals that he received a direct revelation, you know, had a vision, a dream or a vision, and in that he had a conversation with Miles Monroe. So we'll listen to Creflo Dollar wax eloquent. And then just to kind of, you know, balance that out a little bit, we'll play a little bit of, you know, what kind of theology Miles Monroe had. We've played him before here at Fighting for the Faith. He wasn't a major player in our updates, but we've we've had a couple of updates regarding Miles Monroe, and he has made some pretty outrageously awful statements uh, theologically regarding Christ and Christianity, and we've uh, done a couple of updates on him. So what we'll do is we'll play for you audio from his uh, appearance on, um, well, Benny Hinn's program. Mm -hmm. 
And so Benny Hinn is interviewing Miles Monroe. And so what we will do is we'll go ahead and we'll listen to that interview so that you kind of get a radar fix on his theology. We'll take a break, and then when we come back, we'll kind of have an extended Brian Houston update. Um, and let me kind of begin to set this up, this Brian Houston update. Have, are you familiar with the idea of having a pioneering spirit? Um, I, yeah, I, no, I have no idea what that is, but see, the thing is, is that guys like Brian Houston, they you know, have made a name for themselves by being innovators and the, the innovations that they have introduced into the church are just outright awful, just terrible. And they have wreaked all kinds of damage within the body of Christ. But see, the thing is, is that he has to justify the, the innovations that he's made and so, in fact, guys like Brian Houston and Rick Warren and others, they have this interesting way in which they try to justify it and, in a sense, kind of cast vision to their masses to, you know, to create some internal messaging uh, designed to uh, basically silence critics and, and make them, the, the people in their audience, feel like that this is what God is doing. And so they talk about the importance of being innovators or pioneers and the importance of, uh, you know, getting on board with the new thing that God is doing. And so, you know, what's the new thing God is doing? Well, Brian Houston, well, he's been tapping into the new thing that God has been doing for a long time. And so we'll be listening to a uh, message delivered not too long ago by Brian Houston talking about this pioneer spirit thing. And we're actually going to take some time to take a look at the biblical text that he is making allusion to but not actually preaching to see if his message actually holds up and uh, holds water. And then, like I said, in hour number two, we'll head to Westridge Church and listen to another awful sermon that misses and or mixes the uh, Christian message. Uh, and uh, it's it's just, yeah, you get what I'm saying. So uh, with that, we are going to uh, dive into the program proper and in lieu, and, well, not in lieu, but in light of the fact that this opening segment, this David Herzog segment, there's some things that he says that are just a little bit on the uh, weird and wacky side. I, I do believe that your safety needs to come first, and so I am going to begin by doing this. Warning, fighting for the faith can be dangerous to your health. Listening with caution is strongly urged while doing any of the following activities. Operating heavy, deadly equipment, playing Farmville, or any time-wasting, brain-numbing activity. For sudden awakening at the sound of a particularly stupid isogetical statement could cause neck strain. Drinking liquids, drinking hot liquids, having liquids too nearby, not having any liquids nearby. The following medical conditions have been known to occur while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Cranial keyboard embedment syndrome, sinu-nasal liquid spewment disorder, steering wheel pounding clenched fist strain, continual gaping dry mouth atosis, and frustrative disbelief brain explosion. Please take proper precautions. Drinking straws, padding, and duct tape are recommended. You've been warned. So, uh, as we step here into the glory zone, yeah, that's the name of a television program put together by David Herzog Ministries and broadcast over at xpmedia.com, we're going to be listening to, um, well, David and his wife talk about how to walk into your future, how to walk into your future. And, uh, you know, again, keep in mind, the warning applies specifically to what it is that you're about to hear. Um, so, without any further ado, uh, here's... Um, Let's take a walk into the glory zone as we walk into our future. Here we go. 
Hi, today we're going to talk about how to walk into your future promise or future glory. There's things that God's prepared for you in the future, and some of you are waiting for it to happen. But there's some things that you can do to actually accelerate and walk into your future now. Now? Wow, okay. So there's certain things I can do to accelerate and walk into my future right now. So apparently I'm supposed to have received a direct in, uh, you know, d- revelation from God um, and, uh, and, uh, and, you know, regarding my future. And, of course, it hasn't happened yet. So there's steps that I need to take to in order to accelerate that future. What must I do, David? We're going to talk about how to walk into your future glory. It's an exciting subject, isn't it? Yes, that's right. And there are things in your life that you can walk into now that you don't have to wait till certain things happen. There are certain things that God wants. Now, this is Stephanie, uh, Stephanie Herzog, David Herzog's wife. What she's to have today. So just tune in today and, and listen to what we have to say, and we'll share with you how you can have your, God's promises fulfilled in your life today. Wow. I mean, I mean, who knew that there was something I can do to have God's promises fulfilled in my life? I don't have to wait. I can I can have it like right now. I mean, could you imagine I mean, if if only Abraham had this ability. If only he had David and Stephanie Herzog, you know, how many years did he have to wait before, you know, God's promise of a son would actually be fulfilled through Sarah, you know? I mean, poor Sarah, I mean, she, she had to go through menopause and, you know, she was old and dried up and and you know, practically, you know, you know, a desert dust in the wind kind of thing, and uh, and and if only she had these acceleration steps, she could have, you know, not had to wait, you know, to have Isaac until after menopause. She could have had him like when she was, you know, in her twenties or thirties, you know. Hebrews 11.3 says the worlds were framed by the word of God. What that means is that when God speaks a word, there's an invisible frame that's created in the atmosphere. You know, when I was in a meeting recently, we said someone here is being healed of a tumor. Suddenly the tumor was gone when the person got up. What happens is that it's like the man that was paralyzed when Jesus told him, Take up your mat and walk. When he spoke that word, the frame was created. The frame was the invisible legs that were standing right in front of him. But he had to lean into that frame for it to manifest. What? (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) What did I just hear? (laughs) So, hang on a second here. I'm going to pull this up in my Bible. Um, Hebrews 11.3, huh? Yeah, it says Hebrews eleven that the that the universe was framed by God's word. So what that means is is that that guy who had his legs healed uh, by Jesus, uh, Jesus spoke the word, and that created the frame of the invisible legs, and then the guy just had to lean into it. <laughs> that is not what Hebrews eleven three is saying at all. <laughs> Yeah, you know, that one just came out of nowhere. I mean, you might as well have been theologically t-boned. Um, but I, again, I tried to warn you. Uh, Hebrews eleven one. We're going to apply our three rules for sound biblical exegesis. They are context, 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 and we're going to use the ESV um, translation to kind of explain what's going on in Hebrews eleven three. Is Hebrews eleven three saying that God creates invisible frames when His Word speaks, and then we just lean into those frames and our miracles occur? Well, let's take a look. Hebrews eleven one. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for. Hang on a second, I'm using the NIV here. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. 
For by it, by faith, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Ah, yeah. So this is talking about the ex nihilo creation. And we understand that the universe was created by God's word. You know, where God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, let the earth teem with fishies, you know, things like that. And so what was seen was not made out of things that are visible. Instead, no, God was creating ex nihil. So Hebrews 11.3 is talking about the ex nihilo creation of God. That means out of nothing. It is not talk, saying that, okay, so when God's word speaks, it creates invisible frames, and then we lean into it. You know, that was such a crazy statement. I have no choice but to actually go back and play that Brian Her- uh, not Brian David Herzog statement just one more time. And by the way, he's in Sedona, Arizona, and he's recording outside. So hear this again with this strange theology of uh, David Herzog. Hebrews 11.3 says the worlds were framed by the word of God. What that means is that when God speaks a word, there's an invisible frame that's created in the atmosphere. You know, when I was in a meeting recently, we said someone here is being healed of a tumor. Suddenly the tumor was gone when the person got up. What happens is that it's like the man that was paralyzed when Jesus told him, Take up your mat and walk. When he spoke that word, the frame was created. The frame was the invisible legs that were standing right in front of him. (laughs) No text. (laughs) Talks about invisible legs standing right in front of that guy. But he had to lean into that frame for it to manifest. Uh Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No text actually says that, especially Hebrews 11.3. So next time you're in a meeting and the glory is present and the power is there and someone gives a word, if it's for you, jump out and take it. It won't manifest until you walk into it. (laughs) There's some practical advice. So if you happen to find yourself in one of these uh, Pentecostal revival meetings and you need a healing and the glory just happens to show up, I guess sometimes it doesn't happen. If it does show up, Whatever you you got to lean into the frame so that you can you know your miracle can manifest. What on earth is this? It's like there's an invisible frame created. Yeah, and it manifests when you step into it. Yeah, it's kind of hard to explain sometimes. Yeah, I bet it's hard to explain because the Bible doesn't teach this. But you'll be in a meeting and somebody will say, "Someone here is missing teeth. Get up right now and look in your mouth." So the invisible frame is there. The teeth are there, but they're invisible. As <laughs> there are people who believe this is Christian doctrine? Really? You start to look. Suddenly, people start saying, oh, man, you have teeth there that weren't there before. The creative miracles are created the same way as Hebrews 11.3. The worlds were created by the spoken word of God, or they were framed, as other translations say. So even as we pray for you on this telecast, there's going to be a lot of words spoken and framed. And what you've got to do is take that word and make that yours, and the invisible frame will become visible. Hebrews 11.3 also said God took things that were invisible and made them visible. He took invisible things to make visible things. No, that's not what... Hebrews 11.3 says, For by faith we understand the universe was created by the word of God so that what was seen was not made out of the things that are visible. 
You're twisting God's word very badly, Mr. Herzog. And those invisible things are the spoken word of God and the awesome presence of God. Yeah, so there you go. There's some practical advice. So, I mean, do you have some kind of dream or vision or need that you need from God? Well, you, when next time you find yourself in a Pentecostal, um, you know, glory service, and the glory of the Lord just happens to show up and people start speaking things out, well, what's happening is is that if you're missing any teeth, you know, um, then what's happening is is that those words are creating these invisible frames, and you just got to stand up and lean into it, and boom, your miracle will manifest. Yeah, so you know, I'm kind of hoping that uh, you know, next time I find myself at one of these charismatic meetings that a skinny version of me will be framed through some miraculous word. And all i got to do is lean into it, and boom, you know, I'll be half the man I used to be. That's just I mean, I, something to look forward to there. You know, it's, oh, man, this has nothing to do with Christianity whatsoever. Yeah, uh, how, does the, how does the old saying go? You know, there's a, uh, <clears throat> there's a sucker born every minute. Yeah, I think that's the way it goes. Yeah. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian, or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we have a, 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 a Miles Monroe Creflo Dollar update and then a, a Brian Houston update. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss them. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> other news, it seems that the inhabitants of Earth are not the only ones subject to economic slumps. Jensen Franklin, through direct revelation from God, has given us information that says that the unemployment rate within God's own army has drastically risen. Take a listen. An angel came and opened the doors and broke the chains. My point to you is simply this. When you don't pray, angels become unemployed. The greatest tragedy of prayerlessness is the unemployment of angels. Because when you pray, God gives angels their their orders. When you pray, the spiritual battle in the heavenlies begins to be armed with the prayers of the saints and people binding. And whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Attention angels, this is uh, the Holy Spirit. I have an announcement regarding the uh, 
latest downturn in the economy. And I understand that a lot of you have been unemployed lately due to a lack of prayer. And I wish there was something that I could do about this. But, you know, I feel so powerless when it comes to these kind of things. Um, we, uh, we've uh, created a welfare uh, basket, a spiritual relief type of thing. And uh, so those of you who have been hit hard by the latest downturn and are now finding yourselves unemployed, uh, please uh, proceed over to the uh, <clears throat> relief office and uh, we'll see what we can do to help you out. Thank you. All right, all right, everyone just calm down. Thank you. Now, I know that none of you care to be here, but since we're experiencing a worldwide shortage of prayer, it would behoove you to keep calm and allow us to do our jobs. Gabriel, put your wings down. There's not nearly enough room for that. And Michael, Michael, don't cut in line. I know you're the big cheese around here, but all of us have been affected equally. Wait your turn. Next! What's your name? George. George? Whatever. Where'd you fly in from? South Orange County, California. California? That's frontline enemy territory. How many tours you done down in that kill box? About nine. Oh, you're quite the veteran. That's, uh, that's, uh, that's Rick Warren's territory, right? Yeah, he's got most of the people down there praying for purpose, better sex, other useless junk like that. Those idiots don't even realize they don't need God for such things. I hear you on that one. Now, I know it's not much, but this is what I can give you. It's our premium spiritual relief basket. Thank you. I'll be sure to put this to good use. (laughs) I know you will. Next! What's your name, bub? Harold. Okay. Harold, where you hailing from? Charlotte, North Carolina. Good gravy. You must really be hurting. Everyone knows that Stephen Furtick's neck of the woods is just filled to bursting with heretical slop. Uh, what are they praying for nowadays? It's the strangest thing. They keep praying to the sun, telling it to stand still. I don't get it. Those morons! Don't they know nothing about astrophysics? If they were to stop the sun, they'd burn half the world to a crisp. Moon rocks have higher IQs than those dingbats. All right, got a relief basket for you. I greatly appreciate the help. <laughs> I know, you're welcome. Next! And your name is... Bob. Bob? I swear, angels these days. All right, Bob, lay it on me. Where you from? Vatican City. Vatican City? <laughs> Are those bozos still praying to dead people and inanimate objects? More than ever. You know, that really frosts my cookies. I mean, seriously. Take Mary, for example. That poor woman has been dead for millennia. She's not answering prayers. Who is the dumb schmuck that thought praying to her would do anything in the first place? Humans! They're so darn gullible sometimes. Anyway, here's your relief basket. Sorry. Just getting real tired of that. Happens every time I give someone a basket. Next! Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's 
featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Warning, getting your theology from xpmedia.com or televangelists, well, that's like getting your theology, well, by picking through the garbage rather than getting it from God. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. This is your opportunity to partner with us so that we can keep doing what we're doing. And the way you do that is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95. That's it. To the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio, it helps to ensure that we stay on the air. The more people that join our crew, the better because it helps take the peaks and the valleys. It takes them out of our uh, the equation a little bit, which is nice so that we can pay our bills every month. And, of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And, of course, let me thank you for your support because we can't do what we're doing here without it. And just a reminder, it's still not too late to uh, get your pirate Christian radio paraphernalia for for our uh, Christmas bake sale. Go to fightingforthefaith.com. Bake sale link is right at the top of the page. It says bake sale. Click on that. And we still have T-shirts and uh, earrings that my mother has made and, and you know things like that, Christmas bulbs with the pirate Christian radio flag on it. Um, all, all proceeds go to help keep us on the air. It's a, another good way to partner with us. And again, thank you, thank you, thank you for your support because it is our listeners that uh, truly are the ones who uh, help keep us going. And we th- are very thankful for every uh, person who partners with us so that we can keep getting the word out and helping to open the eyes of people that they're being deceived and have fallen under the sway of people who are wolves rather than Christian pastors and shepherds. Okay. Moving along, it's time for a money-grubbing televangelist update. That requires us to do this. Don't want no loving. Don't want no kissing. Don't want no gal to call me honey. Don't want my name in the Hall of Fame. Just want a big fat pile of money. Give me that almighty dollar for that lettuce, hear me holler. Give me buckets full of ducats. Let me walk around and waller in Mazuma. Elder Nero, wanna be a millionaire? Give me money, 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 money. I want that green ammunition. That's the stuff for which I'm wishing. Fill my closets with deposits. I'm a demon in addition. Give me shekels, give me pesos. Let me see their smiling faces. Money, 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 money. Wanna get me a suit that's made out of oot and whistle. 
the word and green. I got that monetary itis like speeches like King Midas. Want that golden touch is what I mean. Give me that old double eagle. Want that tender that is legal and financially substantially. And his some I can and beagle. Want a living regal splendor for that loving legal tender. Money, 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 money. All right, that's uh, Dr. Teeth and Money, Money, Money. Now, what we're going to be listening to, um, and the audio quality isn't all that great. What we're going to be listening to is Creflo Dollar's speech, um, words spoken at um, the funeral for Miles Monroe. Now, if you didn't hear the news, Miles Monroe, uh, he, well, he died. He and his wife died when their private jet crashed in the Bahamas about a month or so ago. And uh, here's Creflo Dollar explaining a direct revelation, a dream or vision that he had where Miles Monroe appeared to him. Mm, yeah, it's uh, rather fascinating. Again, the audio quality, I'm, we, you know, we're not responsible for that. This is how it has come to us via the Internet. But uh, here's Creflo Dollar to explain uh, this direct revelation. And then we'll give you a little bit of a taste of the type of theology that Miles Monroe gave when he was alive here on earth. It wasn't sound biblical doctrine and Christ-centered at all, but here's Creflo Dollar. Here we go. Family members, governmental dignitaries, ministers of the gospel, family, to have this opportunity to be here with you tonight to declare that a general in the body of Christ, Dr. Miles Monroe, a general in the ranks of wolves dressed in sheep's clothing. Yeah, he's um, he's gone to face Jesus and explain his teaching. That's true. And his beautiful wife, Ruth, it did an outstanding job as leaders in the body of Christ, and they will be greatly missed. Yeah, I won't miss his uh, false doctrine at all. I, I hesitate to tell you, and I was going back and forth vacillating whether or not I would even share this, but three days after the incident, I had a dream, and uh, Dr. Miles was in the dream, and a bunch of ministers were here in the Bahamas, and he was taking us upstairs and through the church, and he was telling us where to sit down, and he was telling us what was going to happen, and I... And I said, well, what, what, what are you doing? He says, this is, a, this is a home-going celebration. And I said, wait a minute. Um, uh, I said, you, you're leading your own home-going celebration? And then he sat us down, and, and I had forgotten he was a musician, and he sat down at a piano, and he started playing. He says, now I'm going to really show you how this ought to be done. And I woke up like, man, Miles even leading me in my dream. He's a leader everywhere I go. He was such a blessing in my life. We would bump into one another around the world in the Ukraine, in London, and every time 
he would every time they were refueling their private jets, you know, while vacationing in exotic locations. Pictures of of all of his journeys and adventures with leaders and and uh, prime ministers and presidents around the world, and we would get to talking about the latest revelation that God had revealed to each of us. And the latest revelation that God had revealed to us. Apparently, these men are prophets. You know, quick, you better write all this stuff down that these revelations from God, because we got to start adding pages to the back of our Bibles. We were like two teenage boys shouting and thanking God for the revelation. And I really missed him because I hadn't seen him in a while. And I wanted to really sit down and talk to him about this message of grace and let him pick it apart and tear it up and put it back together again. And then we just shout over it. And, and now I know that you cannot take life for granted. It is a precious thing. Yeah, it is. And it's a short thing. And you ought not to spend what few precious days you have here on this earth deceiving people in the name of Christ and teaching false doctrine. Now, to give you kind of the temper of uh, what it is that Miles Monroe taught, we're going to be listening to, well, an interview that Miles Monroe did not too long ago with the notorious Word of Faith heretic and TBN televangelist Benny Hinn. Here we go. With Pastor Miles Monroe, Saints, let me tell you something. I have heard some of the most amazing truth the last two days. Amazing truth. Pastor Miles Monroe is one of the greatest Bible teachers I think I've ever heard. And the people said... Yeah, one of the greatest Bible twisters I've ever heard. And that's not something to brag about. Now, we're in the Bahamas here. We are in the Bahamas, the beautiful Atlantis Hotel. By the way, you got to come down here and visit this place. It's amazing. And make sure to visit Pastor Miles Monroe's church. What a Bible teacher. He talked about rediscovering the kingdom. I heard things. Rediscovering the kingdom. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, Benny Hinn flew there to the Bahamas in his private jet. And Miles Monroe and his wife, they died in their private jet. In fact, it cleared up many of my questions, Pastor Miles, about the kingdom. It's not a democracy. It's a theocracy. This is not a republic. This is not a democracy. This is God's kingdom. He makes the rules. He makes the decisions. And we carry them out. How powerful. At the end of the program, I can tell you how you can get the book and a whole lot more. On this program, we'll be talking about the power of vision. Again, one more time. The power of what? Power of vision. What is that all about? There's nothing as powerful as vision. You know, uh, nothing as powerful as vision. You mean vision is God? Isn't God more powerful than vision or is vision does god have to tap into the power of vision nothing more powerful than vision hmm. so uh vision is apparently omnipotent the gift that god ever gave man it's not the gift of sight but the gift of vision hmm. i thought the gift the greatest gift that god gave man was his son uh-huh Born of the Virgin Mary, crucified under Pontius Pilate, dead and buried and raised again on the third day for our sins and for our salvation. I thought that was the greatest gift given by God to man. And you're saying the greatest gift given by God to man is vision. huh? There's a big difference. Well, sight is a function of the eyes, but vision is a function of the heart. Wow. And you were not born nor created to live by your eyes. Because your eyes show you what is. Visions can show you what could be. 
And that's why faith is the same as vision. Faith is seeing things that be not. As though they were. As though they already exist. Vision is a glimpse of your purpose. Vision is seeing. Vision is a glimpse of your purpose. Oh, so Miles was a purpose-driven prosperity preacher. Purpose and technicolor. Wow. Uh, every human being was born for a purpose. Purpose is defined as original intent. And everything that God created was created to fulfill a specific purpose and intent. In other words, God created nothing for experimentation. Nothing in this world of creation exists for the fun of it. God created nothing for beauty. Everything, even though it may be beautiful, it performs a function. The sun is beautiful, but it, if without the sun, we would not live. Because the, the gamma rays and the ultraviolet rays is what caused the chlorophyll to make food in these leaves that produce oxygen so we can breathe. So without that sun, we'll be dead. Even though the sun is beautiful, the sunset is beautiful, it exists for a function. The flowers that we see here among us, are beautiful flowers, they're beautiful, but it's not beauty God was after. Every color in this flower is designed to attract a certain insect that comes to it to eat, and that pollination that takes place in the, in, on the bee's leg, for example, produces new blossoms that produce new seeds that produce new trees. In other words, the beauty... Notice he's not exegeting a biblical text. He's exegeting the book of nature. It's for a function. Wow. The, 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 the very hair in your nose... You are such a brilliant man. <laughs> I mean, I'm hearing things about... Give him a big God bless you, will you? I mean, I'm hearing... Really, that's brilliant, huh? Yeah, so you kind of get the idea. That's what Miles Monroe was about. And so, you know, we just wanted to report on the fact that Creflo Dollar, well, he, um, he, well, he had a dream and, you know, Miles Monroe appeared to him and, and, you know, chatted with him and planned his own life, homegoing celebration. And of course, Creflo Dollar is another one of these prosperity guys who teaches the word of faith heresy and he jets around the world in his private jet as well. Yeah, these are many, no, sorry, these are people who teach for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. That's what scripture t- says about these men. And, you know, Creflo Dollar is right. Life is precious. It's a gift and it's short, very short. And um, these men need to repent and preach the truth. They need to repent of their false doctrine and their teaching for shameful gain, things that they ought not to teach. That's not the biblical message. These men are master manipulators of the masses and they've made mounds of money doing that. Moving along, we've got another money-grubbing televangelist update, and I'll go ahead and play this. I've got 90,000 pounds in my pajamas. I've got 40,000 French francs in my fridge. I've got lots of lovely lira, now the Deutsche Mark's getting dearer, and my dollar bills would buy the Brooklyn Bridge. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money. There is nothing quite as beautiful as cash. Some people say it's folly, but I'd rather have the lolly. With money you can make a splash. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money. Money, money, money. It's nothing like a newly minted pound. Money, money, money. Everyone must anchor for the bunchness of a banker. It's accountancy that makes the world go round, round, round. You can keep your Marxist ways, but it's only just a phase. For it's money, money, money makes the world go round. Money, 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 money. 
right. So uh, innovators, uh, church innovators like uh, Brian Houston, how does he shore up the masses who may be getting biblically wise and starting to doubt that the things, the changes that he's brought on the church are actually biblical or in line with what God's word teaches and says regarding the pastoral ministry and things like that? Well, it's real simple. From time to time, you need to give kind of vision casting messages that just kind of shore up people's doubts and create in them this false impression that all of these new innovations that were brought into the church, well, those things represent the new thing that God is doing. And how do you do that? Well, it's real simple. You twist God's word. You go to kind of those passages in the Bible where the Old Testament has now given way to the New Testament, the new thing that God was doing. You see, the thing is, there was a new thing that God was doing. And that was is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. The old covenant has passed away, and the new covenant is now here. But there's no, there's no biblical warrant to believe that within the new covenant that there's new things that God's going to be doing. Like, you know, for the first 500 years, God was doing things this way, and then for the second 500 years, he was doing it this way. And now, you know, another 500 years later, there's a new thing that God is doing. And so let's take a listen to uh, Brian Houston and his message regarding having a pioneering spirit. And we will note all of the Bible twisting along the way because his message is false. His message is a total twisting of God's word. And there's some pretty weird things that he says in there. But you're going to need to have an open Bible for this segment if you don't have one already. So without any further ado, here is uh, Brian Houston talking about the pioneering spirit. second thing is a pioneer reaches the unreachable and includes the excluded. I love this thought. Think about this. The first three individuals when the gospel goes beyond Jerusalem and Judea to Samaria, the, and then ultimately to the uttermost parts of the end, the first three individual con, uh, converts that are mentioned, in other words, new believers, the first one is a wizard. His name's Simon, who confounded the people with magic tricks. They were astonished with his magic. He's a sorcerer, a wizard. The second one... Now, by the way, this is true. One of the first people mentioned, you know, as a convert, you know, non, non, totally non-Jewish, or, well, I think he was Samaritan, but we'll have to look at the text real quick, is, well, Simon the Sorcerer. So we'll take a look at uh, that story in a minute, but I just, let's kind of take note here. So pioneering spirits, they, you know, they innovate in order to reach the unreachable. And so Simon the Sorcerer apparently represents one of those types of people. Later in Acts chapter 8 is an Ethiopian eunuch. Put it bluntly, he was castrated, which I guess made him a part of a minority group. Yeah, are you kind of somehow implying that the Ethiopian eunuch was, does that somehow make him homosexual or something? It doesn't do that at all. By the way, yeah occupational hazard when uh, in the old days when you worked for a queen yeah <clears throat> yeah they wanted to make sure there's no formal caboodling between the court uh, people the people who you know worked for the uh, monarchy and the monarch themselves and so yeah occupational hazard i think osha would go for those uh, tactics nowadays but that doesn't mean that he was sexually confused <laughs> the 
mom was a terrorist. Uh, what? His name was Saul in Acts chapter 9. Terrorist? Oh, okay. Um. The Bible literally describes Saul as breathing threats and slaughter against Christians. And not only that, he was described as being in full agreement with Stephen being put to death. Well, yeah, this is true. How's that for an encouraging front row in church? The first three. What have you got? You've got a guy who's still got his tarot cards in one hand and astrology charts in the other hands. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You're saying that Simon the Sorcerer would come to church with his astrology charts? Yeah, we're going to have to deal with this here in a second here. So we've got Simon the Sorcerer we need to take care of. How about that Ethiopian eunuch? What do you got to say about him? You've got a guy who's got real sexual identity problems. He's not sure who he is. Yeah, no, um, he knows exactly what he is. He's a male who's, well, become a eunuch. Um, it's not like it's uh, it does the text. If you are a eunuch and you're working for a monarch, it doesn't mean that you have sexual identity issues. It's weird that you would project that onto uh, you know, the Ethiopian eunuch like that. And then you've got a third person who's a terrorist. That Former repentant terrorist. It's pretty encouraging for the worship team when they look down. What? I love the fact that maybe not terrorists, but I love the fact that still our church is a church which is for whosoever will. Okay, so let's let's take a look at what he's doing here. Notice he's not actually preaching on any of these passages, which is kind of the important thing. Now, Acts chapter eight. We'll take a look at um, let's take a look at that Ethiopian. Oh, the Simon. Uh, first, we'll look at Simon. Okay, and here's what we'll do. We'll go to Acts chapter eight, verse four. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them. Uh, the Christ, the Messiah, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Uh, So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria saying that he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, it, it would be great if the story just kind of ended there, it just, but it doesn't. You know, there's a little bit more to it. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, 
May your silver perish with you because you thought you can obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this manner, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Yeah, so, yeah, well, so pointing it to Simon is... Well, um, not exactly, let's just put it this way. It doesn't say that he was sitting on the front row during the worship service with, um, <clears throat> with his scrolls in his hands. And, um, but we do know this, that there, were, you know, there, there are accounts in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 19 in particular, that talks about how um, the word of God, the gospel goes forth and people are being brought to penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And some of the people who were brought to faith in Christ were also people who practice magic. And it specifically says what they did with their scrolls and their magic scrolls and things like that. It doesn't say that they brought them to church. Um, here's what it says in Acts chapter 19. I'll start at verse 11 so we have the context. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. Now seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know. Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit, in whom was the evil spirit, leaped on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. But, <laughs> and this beca uh, became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, Many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magical arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Yeah, 50,000 pieces of silver. So, well, yeah. So, I mean, it's not like there were practicing sorcerers at church. There were penitent sorcerers at church, and they bore fruit in keeping with their repentance by doing what? Oh, yeah. By burning their magic scrolls and books and things like that. Mm -hmm. Now, regarding the Ethiopian eunuch, there is kind of a subplot to this, by the way. And it's not that he was sexually confused. No, it's that the Mosaic Covenant actually forbids somebody like an Ethiopian eunuch for, uh, to be welcomed in the full assembly of the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1 says this, No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. So God's law, the Mosaic Covenant, forbids that uh, somebody like an Ethiopian eunuch can have, you know, you know, full fellowship within the assembly of the Lord. And so the fact that an Ethiopian eunuch was brought to penitent faith in Christ and was baptized and welcomed in does show that God now in the New Covenant, you know, has obliterated that and that anybody is welcome 
all are welcome. The, the, the faith is Catholic, universal for all sinners all over the world, Jews, Gentiles, those who are, you know, have all of their members and those who are eunuchs. Yeah, so, I mean, there's something you can kind of play into there. But uh, what Houston is doing here is rather fascinating and just a little bit, well, disturbing. We continue. The Lord may come. It's never been built on superstars necessarily or people who have got it all together. It's really reached people in all walks in life, the down and out, the up and out, everything in between. And I pray we'll always be that kind of church. And a pioneering spirit keeps that kind of spirit happening in the church. Third thing about a pioneering spirit is a pioneer sings a song that is music to the uninitiated but sounding brass to the establishment. In other words, stepping forward into new ground. Not everybody who represents the status quo or the establishment gets excited about the new thing that God is doing. Yeah, now this is kind of an important thing. You know, it, with innovators like Brian Houston, who is the bad guy? Well, you know, the ominous music, the bad guy, you know, enter the villain, if you would. Well, who's the villain? The villain is... The status quo. Yes, the status quo. That's the evil thing. It's the status quo that has kept the church and suppressed the church with these irrelevant and lame ideas regarding church and having us sing hymns and pray prayers and preach Jesus and stuff like that and from passages in context. Oh, that's the status quo. And it's evil. And there's people who represent the status quo. And they're never happy with the new thing that God is doing. So they have to oppose it. So where does he go to actually prove this from the Bible regarding the fact that apparently the status quo and those who are defending it are really the ones who are the impediments to what God, the new thing that God is doing? Listen to this. In the Bible, you can see to the uninitiated, those who had just been literally connected to Jesus, there was great joy in the city. Acts chapter 8, verse 7. There was great joy in the city, the Bible says. It's verse 8, I think. Great joy. (laughs) But not everyone thought that way. A couple of chapters before in Acts chapter 6. God was doing an amazing thing. The church was multiplying and they were having quickly to keep up with all that God was doing. And so there was a little bit of reorganizing the way things could be done so that the apostles could keep in the word and keep in prayer. And in the middle of that, it describes Stephen. Stephen is described as being full of faith. Listen to it. It's in Acts chapter 6, verse 8. Now pay close attention. I'll highlight what he's doing here. But pay close attention to what he's doing here. The setup was it's the status quo. That's the evil thing. And the people who are defending the status quo against the new thing that God is doing, that they're the evil ones. Well, pay attention because what he's about to do here is, well, the equivalent of trying to pull a fast one by glossing over the details of this text. It says, Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. And then it says there arose some from what is called, it's important to think about this, they were from what? The synagogue of the freedmen. 
tells us where those people were from, Cyrenians, Alexandrians. It's- the, the what of the freedmen? There's an important word there uh, that we need to pay attention to. Let me read it. Uh, Acts chapter 6, verse 8. Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue, uh, synagogue, of the freedmen, as it was called. What does that mean? Are these Christians or are these Jews? Answer, these are Jews. Now, synagogue of the freedmen. There's a lot of ink that's been spilled on this. General consensus, although there's no way to know definitively, is that the synagogue of the freedmen was probably comprised of Jews who had been in slavery in Rome, you know, in Italy, and had somehow either purchased their uh, their freedom or had their freedom purchased for them by family members. And after they were freed, they were able to return to Jerusalem. And, you know, they kind of stayed together as a group in the synagogue of the freedmen. These are not Christians. These are unconverted Jews. But what Brian Houston is doing in this text is equating the synagogue of the freedmen with Christians who are defending the status quo. Uh-huh. Pay attention. We continue. Etc. who were disputing with Stephen. In other words, they were angry about the new grace, about what was God was doing. And who were they? They were the synagogue of the freedmen, literally former slaves, who had come into newfound freedom, had encountered a grace for themselves, and yet were opposed to the new thing that God has done. Yes, it's true that they kind of experienced some kind of grace and that they were no longer slaves. But they had not experienced the forgiveness, the free forgiveness of sins won by Christ on the cross. They were opposing the message of repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. They were not Christians defending the status quo in church. They were unbelievers. That's what they were. Often with a spirit of a pioneer, you start taking new ground, you start occupying all streets. And it's incredible how often it's not people out there in the world who get upset about what God's doing. In fact, they've got a heart that's open to it. It's often people who experience grace themselves who have known the freedom of Jesus Christ themselves, and yet when grace goes into something new, God begins a new thing. It's amazing how they're the people who often are the blindest and the ones who find it most difficult to see. Hmm, Weird. Um, Again, the synagogue of the freedmen was not comprised of Christians. They were opposing the preaching of Christ and him crucified for our sins. Music to the ears of the uninitiated, sounding brass sometimes to the status quo. I don't want to be one who's encountered the grace of Jesus myself and then misses out when God begins to do new things. I want to keep that. I don't want to experience the grace of Christ, but then not experience the new thing that God is doing. So whatever it is that Brian Houston is doing, that's the new thing God is doing. And uh, you'll notice that in this defense, this you know, internal messaging you know, regarding innovation and the pioneering spirit and stuff like that, not one part of it, not one part of it was actually based on sound, correct, biblical exegesis. But the entire argument from beginning to end was based on a twisting of God's word. Yeah, should tell you something. 
Yeah, nowhere in Scripture we expect expected to believe that some new thing that God's going to be doing again. You know, like He did a new thing at the with the with the initiation of the new covenant. But now within the new covenant, there's all these new things that God's going to be doing. No, in fact, Jesus basically says in the Great Commission, "All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age." In fact, the new covenant, you know, exists and is in effect this time of God's mercy and grace. It doesn't change from the time of Christ's ascension until the time of his second advent when he returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. There is no new thing that God's going to be doing. The church is to be doing the same thing that the church has been doing from its inception at Christ's uh, res- uh, ascension into heaven and the falling of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Yeah, Brian Houston is actually deceiving people, and in fact deceiving himself through his Bible twisting. What do you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous edition of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, and there at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, another real bad Christmas sermon that mixes and misses the point of the actual story of Christmas. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. No, seriously. Starfleet wouldn't have lasted two minutes against the Death Star. Say what you want, dude. Why can't you admit that Star Trek created proton torpedoes first? So what are you saying? Without proton torpedoes, Luke Skywalker would never have been able to destroy the Death Star in the first place. Nuh-uh, bro. He had the Force. You mean midichlorians? That never happened. Those movies were just bad fanfics. Have you two seen any Daleks around here? Uh, no. That's funny. We just picked up a distress signal and decided to check it out. Well, we haven't seen any... Come on, you two! Get in! Run! Never fear, nerds of the world. It doesn't matter whether you're into Star Wars, Star Trek, or Doctor Who. Think Geek has something for almost every fandom around. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. To a fighting for the faith sermon review time 
awful sermon. Kind of guilty of both missing and mixing the Christmas message with stuff that really isn't about you at all. the ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's sermon uh, comes to us via west ridge church uh, paul richardson presiding the name of the series is a piece of christmas that's p-e-a-c-e piece of christmas and this is the sermon on joseph and you're going to notice that this has a lot in common with what we listened to last week uh, from you know Tim Castagna and others, you know the fear not sermon stuff. It's these texts aren't about you. There's no hidden application in these things. What they're calling us to do is to believe, as John says in his gospel. These things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing have life in His name. When you think that this is somehow, you know, what's revealed in the story of Christmas is some kind of pattern that's going to play out in your life, you end up missing the whole point of the Christmas story. In fact, just about every biblical text. So let me go ahead and kill the music. And without any further ado, here's Paul Richardson and a piece of Christmas. Here we go. I know you think you know the story, and I know some of you that were here yesterday for Hope for Christmas, and you may be feeling a little tired, but I... I want you to try to put yourself in the story just as much as you can today. Okay, if you're... If you're and there's where this sermon jumps the track. Just put yourself into the story as much as you can. I'm not in there. You're not in there. You can't put yourself into the biblical text. You're reading yourself into it. Narcissus, narcissistic eisegesis. There, I mean, from this point on, there's no way to rescue the sermon. If you're married, if you're single, whatever your circumstances are, just imagine this is you, especially the guys, okay? Because this speaks to us today, all right? You're engaged to this little gal. So excited. Wedding is going to be in May, December 14th. We're getting married on a Tuesday in May, Tuesday the third day, the only day God blessed twice. That's why it's got to be a Tuesday, and so we're going to get married then. But she approaches you, and she says, um, listen, I don't know how to tell you this, but um, I'm pregnant. Pregnant. Now, a whole lot, especially for us guys, a whole lot of stuff goes through our mind. Now, ladies, I can't relate to you as much as far as you trying to get up the, the gumption to, to let him know that this has happened, especially when you consider the idea that what's going through his mind right now is, this is not my baby. I mean, I'm no, this is, this is just, it's not, it's not, it's not my baby. But whose baby is this? Oh, yeah. Okay. Wasn't expecting that answer. And he's, all these things start going through your mind. 
we were going to get married in May, and now you're telling me it needs to be January so that the dress looks right. And so, I mean, I don't understand. How do we get from there to, to there? And notice he's not teaching the text at this point. He's um, come up with this weird narration with that, that kind of psychologically looks into the mind because just imagine yourself in there. So we're not really paying any attention to what a text says. This is not exegesis, and this is not preaching the word. This is just psychological speculation. This is a small town, by the way. I mean, everybody is going to know about this. Everybody. What do I say to the guys? You know, I mean, the, any, any guy. What do I say to the guys at work? What do I say? What am I going to tell my parents? What did you tell your parents, by the way? Could you give them the same story you gave me? What is the... How is this even possible? And when she tells you how it came about and what, what she was told, and now she's passing this on to you, you just absolutely look at her and you've got nothing to say. Nothing. Speechless. And you just walk away. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 gives us a little bit of this story and a little bit to jump off of to imagine how the conversation went with Mary and Joseph. And I love how Matthew starts out, pretty matter of fact, he says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed, she was engaged to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So that's the first thing that went through Joseph's mind. But as he considered these things, maybe after he walked off speechless. Notice the text does tell us something about what was in his mind. And what it tells us isn't everything. It tells us what we need to know. Mm-hmm. This is why you got to, when you're, when you're preaching a biblical text, you stay with what the text is saying. <clears throat> so here's what it says. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Mm -hmm. That means he was going to tell nobody. He was just going to divorce her quietly. And by doing this, by not putting her to shame, he really does open himself up to being the culprit. That's what he's doing. He he's in a sense, by not punishing her, he leaves it open for people to speculate that he's the one who's responsible for this. But he does not want to put her to shame. He wants to cover this, uh, you know, cover her sin up, which is, you know, what he obviously there's no sin here, but that's the way he's thinking. We continue. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, "Joseph, son of David." Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, that's the important sentence. His name will be Jesus. You are to call him Jesus. So Joseph doesn't get to pick the baby's name. He will be called Yahshua. Yeah, because he will save his people from their sins. Yahweh saves for he will save his people from their sins. Tell me that isn't good news. Tell me that doesn't preach. That preaches. Now, um, our sermonizer today will actually 
make a point of talking about this in passing. But at this point, that doesn't seem too much on his radar. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, again, another bombshell here. Okay, so Mary's a virgin. This was prophesied 600-something years prior to the birth of Christ by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Another bombshell. Emmanuel, God with us. So, I mean, literally in these, you know, five, six verses, we have the virgin birth, the salvation, you know, forgiveness of our sins, um, we have the fact that Jesus is none other than God in human flesh. And many of the church fathers believe that the Gospel of Matthew was primarily written to a Jewish audience. And so there in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ, you can say Jesus the Messiah, took place in this way. So, I mean, there is so much important stuff going on here. We have the Messiah, the virgin birth, the fact that this was prophesied and is a fulfillment of a prophecy, a prophecy by Isaiah, and that Jesus is none other than God himself with us. You got some huge things you can preach on here. What do you think he's going to be preaching on? Any of those themes? When Joseph woke up from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he, Joseph... He named him. He called his name Jesus. Now, I want you to just imagine Joseph today. I want you to think. Just imagine that the job of a congregation is not to imagine while you're preaching. The job of a congregation is to listen while the pastor properly exegete and proclaims Christ in his saving office and, you know, rightly handles this text. Think about things from his perspective. I want you to kind of walk in his shoes, if you will. and just So the important thing has nothing to do with the virgin birth, the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, born of the Virgin Mary, which was prophesied by Isaiah, and that he's none other than God with us. All of that is, well, chaff. He's going to get to the real gold here. The real gold, apparently, is what psychologically was going on inside of Joseph that was ever so slightly just mentioned in passing. Weird, huh? Bad priorities. Just understand, I mean, this is a guy probably 20 to 25, and he's a, he's a carpenter. At this point, he may just be a, a carpenter's... Church tradition tells us that uh, Joseph was probably an older man. This is probably his second marriage. That's, you know, I'm just telling you what church tradition says. I, there's no way to verify this, because the biblical text doesn't tell us how old he is. So, you know... You have to kind of take church tradition, you know, with a pinch of salt and, you know, some other things. And so, yeah, listen, it, it doesn't say how old he is. He could actually have been an older man. Apprentice, and he's got, he's got good plans for his life. But some conversations change everything, don't they? I mean, there are some moments that alter the course of your life. Some things you, you never saw coming. Maybe you, you have something like that where your life was headed in a certain direction and then you are faced with a circumstance that you didn't see coming and now the whole trajectory of your life seems to have changed. And there we go, magically, right there. It happened just right as you were listening. He magically changed the subject 
of this text into you. You see, you know, just by imagining what was going on inside of Joseph's mind, by imagining and imagining and imagining, while you were imagining, all of a sudden, whoa, the whole thing changed. And it's no longer about the Savior, God with us, the Messiah, born of the Virgin Mary to save his people from their sins. No, all of a sudden, while you were imagining, it became magically about you. Yep. And now we've totally messed up this text. Maybe it's a a boss that calls you in one day and says, your job has come to an end. Maybe there was a conversation with a spouse where they walked in and said, I don't want to be married anymore. Maybe they confessed an infidelity. Maybe some of you have experienced a a doctor's call where the doctor says, hey, listen, I I know you were in here yesterday for this test. So you're going to need to, I can't give you this over the phone. You need to come into my office. We need to talk face to face. And the Christmas story that you just read from Matthew chapter one has nothing to do with any of those things at all. And many of us have experienced that that sudden call letting us know about the the sudden death of a loved one, someone we weren't prepared to hear about. I mean, there are some things that absolutely jolt you out of your current reality and change the course of your life. And for Joseph, this wouldn't just change the course of his life. This changed his identity. You see, in your translations, it says that Joseph was a just man or a righteous man. It's actually a very specific description for a very specific type of guy in the first century. Joseph is what is known as a Sadiq. He's a guy who is studying the scriptures as much as he can. He loves it. He loves all the laws and the commandments of God. He loves studying the prophets. He loves studying Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He wants to do everything that is in there. He loves keeping all the feast. I mean, depending on how old he is at this point, he may have been the kind of man who was hoping that one day while he's working, a rabbi would walk in and say to him those two words that so many guys in this time would want to hear. And that is this, Joseph, follow me. It would never happen now. It would never happen now, no matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, we're um, we're adding a lot of details to the text here that may not historically actually hold up at all. And what's he doing? He's psychologizing. He's do do we know for a fact that Joseph actually longed and yearned to have a rabbi come and say, "Come follow me." The text doesn't say that. It doesn't say that at all. It, it it just, I mean, for him to just insert all of this stuff, this data in here, that historically is probably like skating on super thin ice. I mean, what is he doing here? Well, he again, it's not about the proclamation that Christ is there, you know, the Messiah, born of the Virgin Mary, to save his people from their sins, although he's going to talk about this in a little bit. No, this is really psychologically all about you and And, you know, what God's apparently calling you to do. What he does at this point, he has completely lost his reputation. It will always be in question as everyone else from the outside looking in looks at this circumstance. And here's the explanation of this circumstance and said, there's absolutely no way. So there's kind of two kinds of people, two ways to refer to people in, in the first century in a town like Nazareth. You were either a Sadiq, a just, a righteous man who wanted to pursue this with all of your heart, or you were just an Amharetz. You're someone who really didn't take any of this seriously at all. And that's 
probably how most people felt about Mary. What if God... Probably how most people felt about Mary. Why don't you just preach the text that you have in front of you? And see, why is he pulling in all of this speculative stuff? Because by pulling in all of this other speculative stuff, he's able to make the text about you. God asked you to give up something like your reputation, your identity, the thing that you believe makes you who you are. What if God asked you to give up something that took you a lifetime to build? What if God asked you to lose it all? Yeah, what if there's a biblical passage that says the job of a pastor is actually to preach the word? Mm-hmm. And he's not doing it. There's also What if there's also a passage that says, you know, to teach only what's in accord with sound doctrine? Oh, there is. Uh-huh. What if there's a passage that says that pastors are to study and show themselves approved as workmen who need not blush with embarrassment, who can rightly handle or divide the word of truth? Oh, there's one of those, too. We've got a problem here. When pastors are teaching you to read yourself into these texts, they are doing so to your own spiritual and eternal detriment. So that you could gain something that otherwise you would never, ever see coming. It's what it means to be a disciple. And in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples, the closest ones to him, the 12 guys that that walked with him on this earth for for a period of time. And and they're having this conversation about Jesus, who's going to be the greatest in your kingdom. And oh, by the way, I'd like to sit here and he can sit here and and put that guy away in the back. And and here's the deal. I just, I want to know how important I am to you. And Jesus stops the conversation in Matthew chapter 16. He says, listen, guys, if anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus says, listen, if you want to follow me, then I'm in charge. You see, following Jesus is not a self-help plan. Following Jesus is a self-sacrifice plan. There have... Um, yeah, um, here's the issue is, is that you can't talk about such things apart from Christ's sacrifice for us on the cross, how he reconciled us to the father, how he took our place in being punished for our sins. Yeah. Isaiah 53 comes to mind here, man. And by the way, what does this have? What do you, what he's saying here? What exactly does this have to do with the Christmas text? We just read the Christmas text is not imperative. It's indicative. If there is a gospel imperative in it, the imperative is for you to believe. To believe that Christ was given to you to save you from your sins. Having a similar conversation in John chapter 12, and Jesus says this. He says, truly, I tell you, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever Hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Jesus gives a very simple illustration, one that we can all understand even today about what it means to follow him and to have a life that even though you felt like it's fine going in this direction, a life that if you trust him with it and you allow him to do what he wants to do with your life, it can bear more fruit than you ever imagined. 
I mean, for centuries now, when a farmer's planting grain, they really, they just plant it very simply, just one seed at a time. And in the first century, they would be very familiar. Yeah, in the uh, ancient world, they used broadcast, seed, you, know, you know, sowing by just broadcast. It was, uh, that, that was the type of method you would get the seed out. Familiar with this, and farmers would walk along and literally just kind of one seed at a, t- at a time in some broken up soil and then cover it back up. In fact, today, in the breadbasket of America, this is still really how it's done. I mean, not by hand anymore, but in Nebraska and South Dakota, these big grain drills, maybe you've seen pictures of, maybe you've seen some video of somewhere, these massive machines. What these massive machines are doing very quickly today is that they are putting grain in the ground one seed at a time. And over a, an, an acre of, of land, a farmer might would put a couple of bushels of seed. But the return that he would receive back would be 40 to 50 bushels. You see, the point that Jesus is making is not just that a, when a grain of wheat dies, it generates life. is that it generates so much life. You see, on our own, we can generate some good things. But Jesus is using this illustration to say, when I am in control, I can promise you there will be a return and a a way of living and and fruit that you would never otherwise be able to produce on your own life to the full. And in order to have this happen, in order to experience this kind of life where it just generates so much fruit, so much life for the kingdom of God, some of you today who have got good plans and who have been trying to work your good plan, and it's left you very unsettled and very... Notice that all of this is law. Law. You got to do. You got to. You got to. You got to. You got to. Yet the text he read is all about what God has done for us. Happy. Some of you today need to try to, to pray a prayer I want to give you. It's very hard. You may want to write it down, but perhaps I think you should memorize this. It goes like this. Dear God, I quit. I mean, truly, dear God, I quit trying to figure this out on my own. Dear God, I quit trying to be in control on my own. Dear God, I'm going to quit trying to solve my marriage on my own. Dear God, I quit trying to leave you out of my finances and expecting things to be different. God, I... How does Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 23, have anything whatsoever to do with your finances? I quit trying to make all my decisions without coming to you. I absolutely quit. And God, I want to dedicate my life, a life where you are in charge, and I want to have a life-changing relationship with you, God. The God of the universe is saying, let me have control and watch what I'll do. Well, actually, the message of the gospel, the imperatives of the gospel are repent and believe, not let me have control. I mean, what a proposition. And I don't know about you, but when I'm in control, when I'm doing things my way, there's no peace. I mean, I don't even understand some days what I'm supposed to be doing, God. I mean, there's this unsettledness. There's this stress. And at this time of year, it tends to rear its ugly head more than at any other time of year. I mean, this is supposed to be the season of peace. But whoever said that said that before they went to the mall. I mean, there seems to be, I mean, we've got good plans. We've got good ideas for how to handle this time of year. We've got good ideas for how to handle any day because let's just be honest. We're good people. You're good people. We can figure this out together. No, you're not. 
if you were a good person, you wouldn't need Christ to save you from your sins. Jesus didn't come to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. That's what Jesus said. But we know in our hearts, the harder we try, the more we try to take things on our own, no matter how good and noble we are, peace will never be found in our own. Yet, no, you're, you're really, you need to understand something. You were born dead in trespasses and sins. For you to talk about yourself as if you're somehow noble kind of misses the, makes it so that you are not a candidate for what Christ accomplished for you on the cross. Our own plans. Peace is only found in following God's plan for your life and seeking him and asking him what that is. Even if you can't see the whole picture. Just seeking God's plan? How about his mercy and forgiveness for your shortcomings and your sin? Just being able to take the next right step. Joseph's got a good plan. The carpenter. He's going to be able to provide. He knows God's word. He's a good guy. He knows the book. But then he got engaged. Man, you add the woman to the picture and this thing just, she's got a whole different plan. I didn't have this plan. I mean, Mary approaches him and he walks away, speechless. And he comes up with a good plan. The plan that Joseph came up with was not to stone her, okay? This is true. That would have been an acceptable plan. And it's what the Mosaic law would have called for. In the first century. His plan was not to publicly humiliate her or, or kick her and her family out of town. Instead, verse 19. That's correct. 19, Matthew says that Joseph, being a just man, being a Sadiq and, and willing to put her to shame, he just resolved to divorce her quietly. We'll just keep it down. Because if he does this, then he may can keep on with his plans. Uh, if he does this, he can keep on with his plans. Where in Matthew one does it talk about his plans again? Right. I mean, he's got he's got a story to to tell. I mean, this was not my fault. I mean, I'm not I'm not the reason she's pregnant. And so he brings it to the guys in the small group and says, "Guys, no, he doesn't bring it to the guys in the small group." Again. Her husband, the Matthew 1, 19, her husband being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So he doesn't go to his small group and say, hey, guys, what do I do? He doesn't say anything to anybody. He wants to do this quietly. Man. What's the point of having a text if you're not going to pay attention to the details of the text, but invent your own details and make those the thing that you're preaching on? You won't believe what she hit me with this time. I mean, this was crazy. I thought the, the wedding invitation list was long, but this is, I mean, this is a whole different deal. And so they bring it out and they pray together and, 
you know, two of the guys in the circle are saying, let's go ahead and stone her. I mean, we haven't gotten to do that in a while. And, you know, it's the first century. And so, you know, it sound, that sounds interesting. And so uh, let's just send her out of town. Let's, let's, let's make her move to another city somewhere. And then, you know, a couple of the, the wisdom voices in the group. And, you know, it's a men's group. And they're praying together. And there's, they're having a biscuit and coffee. And so they, they're feeling... Again, how is this even possible that Joseph is having this conversation with these men about Mary when the text says he w- didn't want to put her to shame at all? If he's discussing this with the men in his small group, you know what those men are doing when they get home? Hey, honey, did you hear about Mary? <gasps> Let me tell you this. Yeah, he didn't do that at all. I'm good about things, and they, they take a vote, and they say, oh, just divorce her quietly. That's how this works. So that's what he decided to do. That's Joseph's plan. It's a good plan. It makes sense. Don't you feel like you've got good plans? Life makes reasonable amount of sense. Don't you feel like you've got good plans? This isn't about your plans or mine. It has nothing to do with our plans. This is God's plan to save us. If you got married, then maybe it makes a little less sense, but still, it makes a reasonable amount of sense. He's got a good plan, but it's not God's plan. So God lays out the plan. But as he, Joseph, considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. This always messes things up. Saying, Joseph. This always messes things up. Like, you know, this happens all the time today. You know, you know you've got your plans and God's going to come and appear to you in a dream and tell you to do certain things, you know, regarding your finances or your marriage or whatever. Really? Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll bear a son, you'll call his name Jesus, for he will save his people, and you, by the way, from their sins. Mm-hmm. Now we've got, now you can, it's kind of sinking in here. Oh yeah, there's something in here about the forgiveness of sins, not just our plans. By the way, there's nothing in here about your plans. There's a lot in here about the forgiveness of your sins. And here's Joseph. Mary's giving him the news just trying to figure this out. I mean, come on, you've got to be kidding me. He's faced with losing his reputation. He's faced more than likely with some form of alienation from his family, from his community, from his friends. I mean, he's been trying to figure out, what do I do about Mary? And now an angel clarifies this. Joseph, this is really, the question is not really, what do you do about Mary? The question, Joseph, is, what are you going to do with Jesus? Joseph, what are you, you going to do with Jesus? Now, I wonder how many of us have, like Joseph, we feel like we've got good plans for success, for contentment. We've got good plans we feel like will come up with peace in our own lives. You know, I mean, we work the peace plan. Here we go again. Got to remind you, this text has nothing to do with your plans at all. Plan, right? typically goes with, you know, let's talk about how long we're going to spend with your in-laws on Christmas Day and Christmas Eve versus my in-laws and, and that uncle. And that, if we can limit ourselves to two hours there, we might have some peace at Christmas. We might, you know, we come up with all of our plans. We come up with the financial plan. You know, if we spend this much on this one because we like them a little more and this much on the other one, I mean, we can, if we balance all this out, we may can do some Christmas this year without any credit card debt or any of that kind of thing. I mean, we can, we can figure this out and try to have some, some peace this year. Truly. 
And I don't know how some of you are wired. I, I imagine Joseph is wired a little like this. I don't know how many of you guys or gals or whoever have, have, have written out the five-year plan. Have you done this? We have a, five, we have a plan. There's, we have the retirement plan. Yeah, this is a Christmas sermon. Yeah, I, I, yeah, totally missing the point. Totally missing the point so far. We've got the, the plan for the next car, the plan for the next house. We've got the plans for the, for the kids. We know what they're going to do. We're writing out the plan. We had like a good date together and came up with the plan. And so we're feeling good about it. And God's looking at you and going, you didn't ask me about the plan. And he's laughing at our plans. He loves us. It's, a, it's not making fun of you. He's laughing with you, really. God's like, please, I know you feel like you've got a good plan, but what about my plan? And it's so simple to me, but Joseph, he had to hear it from an angel in a dream. But when he heard it. Yeah, don't be like Joseph, you know, just just go with God's plan and don't wait for an angel to intervene to kind of course correct you. That's quite the application, don't you think? This spoke to me from God's word this week. It's very, very simple. I know it seems inevitable, but it's not necessarily in my life. Joseph woke up. He woke up and he obeyed immediately. He'd been given this opportunity to do something with Jesus. And he woke up. I know that some of you in this room, a lot of you in this room have been in and around this book your whole life. You have been in and around the story your whole life. You've been around church services your whole life. You know, you know the songs, you, you know all of this stuff. But God, out of his love for you, comes to you again this time, placing Jesus in your arms he says, what you need is not your plan. You need my plan. And what you need is a spiritual awakening. So I got the baby Jesus in my arms and I need a, I, I need a plan. I need a spiritual awakening. Oh, man, this is awful. And again, he jumped the tracks like first paragraph of the sermon when he said, imagine yourself. An awakening that comes from answering the same question that Joseph was forced to answer. Joseph, what are you going to do with Jesus? See, when all of us get to the end of this life, we're not going to be asked. You see, the thing is, is that um, Joseph, no, that wasn't, the question was what to do with Jesus. Because he didn't know Jesus' name was supposed to be named Jesus. And he had no clue until the angel appeared to him to kind of clarify as to what was going on. Or, you know, he had the dream and, you know, he, he got clarification. Oh, okay. That's what's going on. She was telling the truth about the Holy Spirit. This really is the Messiah who's being born. And Joseph, knowing his Old Testament, would know the prophecies of the Messiah. Uh-huh. He just needed to know that this wasn't some lame excuse. And that Mary, you know, didn't have, you know, a boyfriend on the side, but that, that what was really taking place was to fulfill what God had revealed in Scripture regarding the Messiah. 
It's not that he had to, you know, uh, what to do with Jesus. No, that's, see, again, that, that doesn't even fit the text at all. Just like your idea that Joseph went to a small group and told all the men, you know, hey, listen, this is what's going on with Mary. What should I do? Yeah, he didn't do that either. How many times did you go to the church? How many prayers did you pray? How many times did you take communion? Did you do more good than bad? Do you know the book? The key question for everlasting peace and salvation that overrides all the other questions in this life is what are you going to do about Jesus? In every season, it's all about him. Yeah, that's weird that you're saying that because you've made this sermon all about me and my plans. Only in Jesus can we secure everlasting peace. Only by trusting in this is true. In Jesus Christ alone for salvation can we secure the true identity that God wants us to have. It's the true identity? I don't even know what that means. Child of His, a personal relationship with Him. But what about peace for today? What about peace in the middle of this busy season? What is preventing you from experiencing peace right now? And for some of you, your lack of peace comes from the lie that God doesn't want anything to do with you anymore. You've even walked in here today and at some point you... Now, this is where he's going to steer into the gospel, you know, to try to, you know, rescue all of this. But what, what has he done so far? This sermon thus far has been about what? Not what Jesus has done to save us. It's been about, you know, how God has plans for you and they can derail the plans that you think you need to have. And so you need to say, I quit, which this text is not about at all. You have just felt like, you know, this will make me feel a little better for a little while. But really and truly, I just don't think God wants anything to do with me. Maybe, you know, in your heart, maybe there's a sin problem. Maybe there's a... Something in your life, that, and you just got done telling everybody that they're good people, but maybe there's a sin problem. Maybe. Really? Maybe? So if it's a maybe that there's a sin problem, maybe there's some some people in the church that have no sin problem whatsoever? Maybe? That every time you come to moments like this, or you're in a, a moment of prayer, even just out of desperation, but any time that heaven attempts to crash into your daily reality, you come to this moment and you say, yeah, but God, there's the thing that you know I do, and then I'm not sure that I can give up. God, I'm not sure you're big enough to actually forgive me of that. Maybe some of you, I mean, you come into a church and all, all you think about is the person that at some point hurt you the most, and maybe they were in a church with you. And maybe you're hanging on to, to bitterness. For some of you that struggle with hurts and habits and hang-ups, different forms of struggle with hurts and habits and hang-ups, are those sins? <sighs> yeah, that's Rick Warren's obfuscation, to not have to say what that really is. Sin. It's not a sin problem. They're sins that you commit because you're born dead in trespasses and sins and at war with God. Your whole life from the moment of your conception until the time you died is until the time you die is soiled with the foulness of sin. Addiction this time of year is 
is where you lean back on those things because this gets so stressful trying to please people and trying to make it to every party and every function and all the things that the kids got going on. So you go back to what you can lean on that you feel the most secure in some addiction that you go back to again and again and again to try to cope rather than going to God for peace. Second Chronicles chapter 30 says, For the Lord God is gracious and compassionate, and he will not turn his face away from you if you return to him. Okay, so now we're you now he's kind of easing into the gospel. But here's the question I have for you. If a crucified and risen Savior is the solution to the problem, what's the problem? Why do you need a crucified and risen Savior? Is it because you have hurts, habits, and hang-ups and things that you uh, you know struggle with? Or is it because Christ died for your sins you have a sinful nature you have you you know the problem is is that you are sinful through and through so the thing is is that yeah there's forgiveness but forgiveness of what you need to be more explicit if you're not going to preach the law to kill people and to strip them of their self-righteousness and show them of their need for a savior uh, the gospel itself the good news uh, that christ died for our sins and there is forgiveness may or may not really apply to certain people. We continue. It matters not how far away you've gone. It matters not what's in your life today, what you feel like is, is keeping God from being pleased with you. If you turn to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yeah, you kind of skip the front end of that. It says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why would you skip the first part of that passage in 1 John? Hmm. I mean, you know, there's something of the gospel in here. But because he's not preaching the law correctly... <laughs> Yeah, he, um, and convicting people of the guilt of their trespasses against God, which is what God's law does. Yeah, this God is faithful and just thing. It, it's well, it's it's a it's a God without wrath in a world without really sin. Yeah, we continue. This is not this is not a full blown preaching of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Perhaps from all of these things, you have stopped believing that God can have anything to to do with you. Listen, nothing disrupts our peace in the present more than the shame of our past. There's a, in 1792, there's a story of a man who was born, his name is Joseph Moore. And he was born as an illegitimate child to an embroiderer in Salzburg, Austria. And to be an illegitimate child in that environment would mean that you would be denied education opportunities. You would be denied vocational opportunities. I mean, there was no way you were going to get an apprenticeship in town. It didn't matter what you did. I mean, you were pretty much condemned to live kind of isolated on the outside of the world just by you coming into the world the way that you did. I mean, you had so much shame attached to you from the very, very beginning. But Joseph is able to find acceptance in one place. Thank goodness the local church. And in the local church, 
Someone looks him in the eye and says, you matter to God. And so you matter to me. And I believe God has a great plan and purpose for your life. And a local pastor sees some great potential inside of this young man, helps him get an education. He grows up and he decides he wants to go to seminary. Well, that was absolutely off the table from the very beginning. I mean, there's just no way. You're an illegitimate child. There's just, this cannot happen for you. And the pastor of this local church continues to mentor and continues to walk through life with this young man and, and helps him to be able to get into a seminary. He's musical. And people hear about his musical abilities and they, they watch what he does. He writes things and they actually put his musical talent in play in the local church. And getting ready for Christmas services one year, just a couple of days before the services, he scratches out a, a poem and he hands it to a friend. He says, listen, if you put this to music and if you can make it sound good, then I think we can do it in this year's Christmas service. And so the words were put to music and the song Silent Night was born. When you think about the song Silent Night, don't just think about that beautiful night when Christ came in to earth. Don't just think about that. No, not at all. That song is a reminder that every single one of us have God-given potential to become a part of... No, it is not a reminder about God-given potential for your purpose and stuff like that. Let me read the lyrics for Silent Night. And the text was written by Joseph Moore. Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. Round young virgin, mother and child, holy infant, so tender and mild. Sleep in heavenly peace, sleep in heavenly peace. Silent night, holy night, shepherds quake at the sight. Glorious streams from heaven afar. Heavenly hosts sing Alleluia. Christ, the Savior, is born. Christ, the Savior, is born. You think Joseph uh, Moore wrote this song about himself and potential for his life? No, he was singing the praises of his Savior. Silent night, holy night, Son of God, love's pure light. Radiant beams from thy holy face with the dawn of redeeming grace, Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. Nowhere in this song is Joseph Moore mentioned, except for as a footnote at the very bottom in tiny little print is the one who wrote the text. This song is not about Joseph Moore. It's about Joseph Moore's Savior, of a story that you cannot even begin to imagine once God has control of your life. That song is a reminder that every single one of us come in contact with people on a regular basis, that we should take the boldness and the opportunity wherever we live, work, and play to look them in the eye and say, you matter to God. There's no place you can go apart from him. He loves you today. Yeah, he loves you so much that he sent the Savior to bleed and die for you. No matter where, you, where you've come from, First, First John chapter 3 says, Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. He knows everything. And for some of us, there are different moments when our inability to find peace doesn't have anything to do with sin, but it has to do with our lack of obedience. Perhaps God... <laughs> what? 
<laughs> how do you define sin? Let me back this up a little bit, because this is one of the more bizarre sentences I've heard in a while in one of these seeker-driven sermons. Let me back this up just a smidge. Listen again. In our heart, he knows everything. And for some of us, there are different moments when our inability to find peace doesn't have anything to do with sin, but it has to do with our lack of obedience. And that's what sin is. Isn't sin a lack of obedience? Perhaps God has put something in your heart. to. Oh, lack of obedience to the purpose God has put in your heart. So it's not a sin if God's put a purpose in your heart to, to oh, disobey that. What weird theology this is. Accomplished to be a part of. Someone to, someone to reach out to. Someone to share the kindness and the grace of God to. And for whatever reason, just the fact that truly that, that God put it on your heart and that it's something that, that God wants you to be a part of and it's just the next right step. You don't have the big vision, the big plan. You've just got kind of the next little act of obedience and it's something that keeps coming back. Next little act of obedience for living a purpose-driven life. Back to you over and over again, again and again and again, and you just can't find the courage to do it and you don't really know why, but you just don't believe that you have what it takes. God is saying, listen, I know you feel like you've got a good plan. And I know this may not make any sense to you, but I've got a plan. And it may stretch you more. It's going to cause you to rely on me more. But my plans are always going to be better than your plans. Like Joseph, maybe you can't quite wrap your head around the... Yeah, like Joseph. Yeah, those plans. Yeah. Because, you know, Joseph is an example of somebody who was purpose-driven. The idea that God would want you to part with some part of your identity, to do something that in your part of the world, your community, your neighborhood, your workplace, that you feel like is contrary to your reputation. And let's be honest. A lot of times when God puts things on our hearts, it seems like his timing is way, way off. But what if God asked you to give something up so that you could gain something more? And can I point something out? Kind of, I want to be respectful. I don't mean any disrespect to Joseph. He's a fine guy. God didn't need Joseph. Right? I mean, they're not married yet. It's a virgin birth. We don't really need Joseph. I mean, we could have used some other compassionate man in Nazareth to make the trip to Bethlehem. Could have been another guy from the line of David. Could you, God could have used anybody. The only requirement is a donkey. Have you got a donkey that will make it to Bethlehem? In fact, honestly, imagine if the story were different. Imagine if Joseph had divorced her quietly, if he had just done Imagine, 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 imagine. That, see, that's the problem. The job of a biblical exegete is not to imagine. His job is to read the text and proclaim it and rightly handle it and teach what it says. Done that. And then some other guy had come along to decide that he would take on Mary and adopt her baby. We'd be talking about that guy. We'd be fine. But Joseph would have given up the opportunity 
to be a part of the story. But to have this opportunity, he had... And don't do that. No, I mean, you don't, you don't want to miss your opportunity to be a part of the story. God has laid these, these things on your heart, your purpose, and you don't want to miss the opportunity to be a part of the story the way Joseph could have missed the opportunity to be part of the story because Joseph is the ultimate example of a purpose-driven dude, you know? He had to humble himself. He had to be willing to sacrifice his reputation, his identity. He had to give up comfort and security. And then once you do that, everything's going to work out great, right? I mean, they make this 70-mile trip as their crow flies. They get to Bethlehem, and God didn't even call in the hotel reservation. I mean, truly. I mean, wouldn't you think that God would just take care of that? But no. They get to the inn, and an inn, by the way, a large part is just like a fenced-in area for caravans as they're traveling through. It's just going to be animals. It's just going to be people that have been traveling a long way, maybe a little lean-to in the back, maybe a cave in the back. We don't know. But even that thing was overcrowded. Look at the story that Joseph finds himself in because he was willing to lose whatever he had for the sake of what God had put on his heart and for the sake of being a part of God's will in the world. Unless we as followers of Jesus are willing to lay aside our own plans. Unless we, like Joseph, are willing to lay aside our own plans. This has nothing to do with living a purpose-driven life at all. Open up ourselves to God's plans. We'll never know peace. And we'll never be able to be a part of a story where we can say God made something beautiful, even out of craziest and messiest circumstances. See, God wants you to have salvation in your life, eternal security, eternal peace, but just as much. But just as much. Yeah, God wants you to have eternal peace. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the afterthought, but the real important thing is what? He wants you to experience living peace. Ah, That means finding your purpose and obeying the thing that God puts on your heart. In whatever situation you might find on every given day. And every day we have the opportunity to decide what we're going to do with the smallest acts of obedience. Isn't it amazing the way the Holy Spirit puts things in our hearts from time to time? And we either decide we're going to go along with this or just let it pass. You know, a lot of times the picture of Joseph in nativity is different than what I imagine. I feel like Joseph gets kind of a bad rap in the, in the nativities. Do you have a nativity in your, at your house? I mean, honestly. Cue sappy music. Sappy music, by the way, this is an emotional manipulation technique designed to create the false impression that God, the Holy Spirit, is now descending ever so gently upon the audience, getting ready to work with them as they make commitments, commitments to be obedient to the purpose that he lays on their hearts in this particular case. But again, this is an emotional manipulation technique, not a true move of the Spirit. In most nativity scenes, you have to like pick up the figurine and look at the bottom and go, oh, that's Joseph, because they just make him look like one of the shepherds. I mean, you know, he's kind of standing there over top of Mary. He's got the staff in his hand, and it's just, oh, he's not a shepherd. That's, That's Joseph. I mean, I have this picture in my mind of this guy... 20 to 25 years old, 
who may think about this for a second, who may have had to play the role of midwife, truly. I mean, he may have been the one to deliver baby. He, who knows? He may have been the very first one to hold him. So standing there in the smell of hay and barn animals is Joseph thinking to himself, what am I going to do with Jesus? What do I do now? I can remember when my boys were born, especially remember when my firstborn child was born, my son, Will, and I've got two boys, Will and Wesley. And with the circumstances around Will's birth, they handed him to me first. So I got to hold him before Angela did. I'm standing there with them with all this gratitude and all this love and joy. I sang a little song over him and There's really only one thing I know for sure as a dad in this moment. Only one thing. I can't give him back. And wouldn't that be weird? Wouldn't that be strange? I mean, for a guy to just, to just say, listen, um, yeah, I don't know what to do now. So I'm just going to thank you nurse for this lovely gift. Um, and, um, if thanks for cleaning it first and, and things and, and, but I don't do diapers and um, the feeding thing is, I know, um, I, I don't know how we're going to work that out. I don't know. I'm going to lose sleep over this. And so here you go. Thanks for coming. Isn't that what we do, though? God hands you the truth of his word. God gives you his son. And we all get the opportunity to consider in our life. You're getting the opportunity right now to consider. What are you going to do with Jesus? What are my options again? If I'm going to consider what to do here, what do you want me to do with him? I mean, you're not supposed to give him back. But there's so many times we open God's word or we hear God's word in a situation like this or God lays something on our heart and instead of, rece- of receiving the gift with joy and saying, God, thank you, I don't understand. I really don't know everything to do right now, but I'm so excited. I'm just gonna take the next right step. Instead, so many times we just give it right back to God and say, no, I'm out, I'm out. This is too much. And there Joseph is standing next to Mary, holding him. What are you going to do with Jesus? Joseph, what are you going to do with that other name that was used? Remember the one the prophets talked about? What are you going to do with Emmanuel? God with us. What do you have to worry about? Why is there so much disruption in our peace? Why do we try to give him back so much? Why do we walk away so much? Why do we refuse to obey so much? What is it when he has promised to give and he has given God with us? What if you live today? What if you parent today? Notice how he's taking the gospel and turning it into law. Man, and this isn't good news. This is like guilt trip. 
and it's it's bad law here. What are you gonna do with Jesus? Well, you, since Joseph was the one holding him, maybe Joseph should change his diaper or clean him up or something. What if you love your spouse today? What if you take on the, the job that you weren't sure you were going to take, but God has, has given you this opportunity? What if you go down the street to the neighbor who you know needs the touch and the love of God and the grace of God in their lives and God's put it on your heart? What if you go today and say, you know what? God is with me. Emmanuel is with me. God with us. There's nothing that would stop me if I give him control, if I follow his plan. If I give him control, if I follow his plan, how about if I repent and believe that he bled and died for me on the cross? Don't give Jesus back in this season. And don't lose the miracle, the greatest miracle of all. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Why? If you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, faith and trust in him for what? He is with you. For my purpose? Again, what am I trusting him for again? With you. Every day, you can know the peace of God. Every day, you can become a part of a story that you never saw coming, but the story that you'll find yourself in is one that you'll be pleased to just allow God to just keep writing. Let's pray together. Would you buy your... Done. What a mess. Complete and utter mess. As soon as you try to make the text about you, oh, and a little bit of Jesus. Notice it's a little bit of Jesus, but primarily about you. Yeah, that was not a proclamation of God with us. That was not a proclamation of the one who was to save his people from their sins. No, that was, you know, mostly, oh, about finding your purpose, you know, and kind of following the example of Joseph, you know, the ultimate example of a purpose-driven dude, you know, who didn't, you know, who decided to obey so he wouldn't miss out on the opportunity to be written into the story. And this has nothing. Nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with this biblical text and the proclamation of unto us is born a Savior, Savior who will save his people from their sins. Man, absolutely tragic. Why? Because he mixed that story with a foreign theology that is not revealed in that text at all. In fact, it's not revealed anywhere in Scripture. The find your purpose, obey the thing that God puts on your heart story. And that's not what the story of Christmas is about at all. What do you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My mail address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.